Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part one of week two, titled Baptism, recorded in February 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. So before I begin, uh, since some, uh, some listeners may have missed the first one, uh, let's say a bit about this series and what we're talking about. Uh, this series is called Matthew and Luke on Jesus. And the goal is to study Matthew and Luke's Gospels together, comparatively, to gain insight into what is distinctive about their visions of Jesus. One of the basic assumptions of this approach is that Matthew and Luke used Mark as one of their sources. And so the way we proceed is by looking at Mark's story and then seeing what Matthew and Luke do with it. Now, last time when we began with the birth and, and, uh, and early life of Jesus, we couldn't talk about how Matthew and Luke used Mark because Mark has no infancy nativity narrative. Uh, but in, in a sense, today we, we, are, we are at the beginning of this uh, of this collaboration among the evangelists. Uh, today we begin by talking about the baptism of Jesus, uh, a story that is recorded in all four Gospels, not just the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and so it was an event of great significance to the early followers of Jesus. Uh, all, well, all of our Gospels that we're talking about today have basically the same understanding of this event. It is... The, the event that marks the commissioning of Jesus for his mission. Um, in Mark, it is actually the moment at which Jesus discovers who he is and what he is called to do. Uh, in Luke's gospel, if you remember in the infancy story of Jesus, Jesus is apparently already aware of his future destiny and his future identity already as a child in the temple when all the great scholars come to ask him questions. Um, but in Matthew and Mark, this is the moment where he discovers his messianic consciousness, his understanding of himself as the Messiah. So it's a very important event in the story. So since this involves the beginning of Matthew and Luke doing things with Mark, let's talk about first Mark and his story of the baptism of Jesus. We have to begin, actually, with the ministry of John the Baptist, because that comes as part of the package. Uh, Mark begins his gospel with John the Baptist in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is where Matthew and Luke piggyback on Mark. So what does Mark say? Well, we actually even have to go before the narrative of Mark to the very first words of Mark. The Gospel of Mark opens like this. He says, The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Anointed One, of Jesus the Christ or the Messiah, is just as Isaiah the prophet said it would be. 
The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is just as Isaiah said it would be. And then he goes on to quote an Old Testament uh, prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And he says, this is basically the summary of my story of Jesus. This is how I understand Jesus' story. If you don't get Isaiah's story, you won't understand this story. Now, in fact, Mark does more than quote Isaiah. He quotes or alludes to another episode in Israel's past, or perhaps multiple episodes, that involve a messenger. When he says it's just as Isaiah said it was, this is what he says. This is the quotation he gives. Behold, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. The second half of that quotation comes from Isaiah. And why don't we begin with that? Let's just clarify what that saying is and how Mark uses it. Mark is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And if you were at Rabbi Spitzer's lecture last night on the legacy of the prophets, you'll know that this is the beginning of what scholars call Second Isaiah. It's the opening statement of the restoration of Israel. So the scenario of this biblical passage is Israel is in exile in Babylon, and the prophet is sent by God to say, comfort, comfort my people, uh, tell Jerusalem that, uh, that her servitude is at an end. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, her people will return to her. And here then comes this language, uh, a voice crying in the wilderness, uh, make, way, make ready the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. The image is of a highway. Sometimes it's translated as highway. The image is of a highway through the desert. You think of it of a desolate landscape. Think of the American sort of southwest and a highway going through the middle of the desert. The, the mountain ranges that has to go to are dynamited to make space for a flat road. This is the imagery of a royal highway. In the ancient Near East, the great kings uh, built royal highways to move from one end of their empire to the other. And that's the imagery of Isaiah. God himself is going to go on a journey. God himself is going to return to Mount Zion, and he will dwell there again. Also, the fact that it calls this a wilderness. Well, of course, there is sort of a desert between Babylon and, and Israel. But the wilderness is also a symbolic place. It's not just getting from Babylon to Mount Zion. It's also the wilderness of the Exodus, right, that God led his people through to reach the promised land. This wilderness, this reference to a wilderness, is an evocation of the Exodus. What it means is that Mark, by using this, is saying, just as Israel's return from exile to restore the temple of God on Mount Zion is a new Exodus, so is the story of Jesus a retelling of the Exodus. It's a reenactment of a story from the past, from Israel's past. So to the degree that we understand that image of a highway through the wilderness for our God, leading us, the Jewish people, back to Jerusalem, to the extent that we understand that, we will understand Mark's story of Jesus. 
But as I said, Mark also quotes or alludes to another biblical image. And he puts that right in front of this and says, that's from Isaiah 2, even though it's not. Now, we're not sure what Mark's doing here. Uh, What he quotes, I'm sending my messenger before you to prepare your way, that doesn't actually correspond exactly to any Old Testament text. But there are two that it resembles closely enough that they are probably the image Mark is trying to convey. And those texts are Exodus 23.20 and Malachi 3.1. So one of these texts comes from the Torah, the other from the prophets. Talk very briefly briefly about each of these. Exodus 23.20 is the conclusion of what's called the covenant code. We all know about the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20. Uh, God delivers these commandments to Israel, the Ten Commandments uh, that that symbolize the whole of the covenant that he is drawing Israel into to become a holy nation. Uh, But we probably, at least Christians, probably rarely read on for the next three chapters, which is where uh, God says to Moses, here is how I understand those Ten Commandments. These are the concrete implications. And so you have a lot of sort of case laws about if this happens, then do this. Um, We don't need to concern ourselves with the details, but the conclusion of this covenant code ends with a promise. God says, again to Israel through Moses, I am sending my messenger before you, Israel, to guard you on your journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land. And this messenger will fight for you. This messenger is a warrior. This is probably in the context of Exodus, a reference to that pillar of fire that we hear about that goes in front of the Israelites and the cloud that leads them. It is a a surrogate for God's own presence within Israel, this messenger. But what I want to focus on is what the messenger does. It leads them through the wilderness, guards them against the dangers of a hostile environment, brings them to the promised land, and fights for them against the nations dwelling in that land. And if you remain loyal to the covenant, which I've just given you, says God, then you will succeed in accomplishing your goal. You will, you will enter into the promise of this land that was promised to your ancestors. So the, in this, this image of, of the, the, the messenger of God leading Israel through the wilderness to their land, that's what's behind Mark's statement. But there's another reference, too. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi is the last uh, prophetic book in the prophetic part of the Jewish scriptures. Um, It's the the last of so-called the book of the twelve, twelve minor prophets. And if you were at last night at Rabbi's lecture, you know what those are. Anyway, Malachi, which simply means my messenger, Malachi, uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, God says, Behold, I'm sending my messenger before me to prepare my way, and this messenger is going to enter into my temple in Jerusalem. And the messenger is going, who is called the messenger of the covenant, will um, indict the, um, the priests who are running the, uh, the sacrificial system uh, on God's behalf. He will indict these priests for not Uh, performing sacrifices correctly for not teaching the people um, the will of God. 
So the scenario in the book of Malachi is that Israel, now restored to its land after the Babylonian exile, things are not all sweetness and light. Uh, The temple is not being managed correctly, and normal Israelites have done bad things too. And so God is sending a messenger to warn and reform uh, the temple and its priesthood so that they will offer right offerings and teach the people the Torah correctly. Um, so you, what you have in these two passages is a scenario. You have a scenario. When Mark says the story about Jesus is the story about God sending a messenger before someone else to prepare their way, to prepare their journey, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. So Mark is drawing together different images from Israel's history And he's saying these all amount to, they all add up to a plot. And the plot has basically three elements. It has a messenger who announces something. But in order to make the announcement, the messenger has to go on a journey through a wilderness. So there's a messenger, a journey, and a destination. In the context of Mark's story of Jesus, the destination is the Jerusalem temple, as in the prophet Malachi. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is basically to say Mark and his imitators, the story climaxes with what Jesus does in the temple. I say it climaxes there because what Jesus does there is what gets him killed. It's what determines the outcome of the story. Matthew and Luke preserve this basic plot of Mark. That's why 80 to 90% of Mark is in Matthew and Luke. And they begin at Mark's own beginning by rehearsing this plot summary. Except that for Matthew and, and, and Luke, we have those other two chapters beforehand that already shapes the way we're going to understand what happens next. Okay, anyway, so that's the introduction Mark gives, and that, that is the lens through which everything in Mark has to be read. Now, I'm only going to give a brief summary of what happens in Mark's story because I want to focus on what Matthew and Luke do with it. But here's the story, basically. The curtain rises after the plot. I like to think of Mark as sort of Star Wars. You know in Star Wars where the words sort of go across the screen when the, the titles open? And then after that, you move to scene one, whatever that happens to be. That's sort of Mark. You have the the words going across the screen, and then the curtain lifts into the story itself, into the thick of things. And we are treated to John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, appearing in the wilderness. So a a human being called John appears in the wilderness, out of nowhere seemingly, and begins to proclaim his his, uh, uh, message of repentance. He calls Israel to repent by journeying into the wilderness, by retracing the steps of the Exodus, as it were, to the River Jordan. Now, if you know your Old Testament, the River Jordan is where the Exodus ends. If you read the book of Joshua, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, the last book in the Torah, Israel is standing on the east side of the Jordan, poised to enter the land, to complete their journey. And in the book of Joshua, after Moses um, is no more, Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River into the land. The covenant is renewed. The new generation comes into being, and the land is conquered. That's a brief synopsis. Well, this is exactly where John the Baptist begins, is on the east side of the Jordan River. 
in the wilderness. He calls Israel to return to their origins, symbolically to reenact the Exodus. This baptism, this immersion in water, is understood to be something that leads to the forgiveness of sin. So the presupposition is that Israel is in a state of deviance, of sin, and it needs to repent. So John calls Israel to repentance, and we're told in Mark that everyone responds positively. Every inhabitant of Judea came and was baptized. Every inhabitant of Jerusalem came and was baptized. Now, when you read later in the story, you find maybe not everyone. Apparently, the temple leadership was not too crazy about John, so they didn't come. After all, why should they come? He's a competitor. You get forgiveness by going to the temple and offer, making an offering to God. And John is saying, no, come out here to me. Evidently, John didn't think very highly of the temple, the, the current state of the temple either. So he said, let's come out here and, and re- renew our, our people, renew our history, renew our covenant. So that's how it starts out. And we're told that John was wearing sort of risque clothing, right? Camel's hair. I guess that was not in fashion in that day. And he was eating locusts, right? locusts, bugs, and wild honey. So he was a kind of ascetic. And after that setting of the scene, uh, John delivers a message. He says, Someone is coming after me who is stronger than I am, whose sandals I am not worthy to unbind. Um, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So just in the, in the very first few verses, we already have a pretty good fit for the plot summary. We have a, a voice in the wilderness calling Israel to begin a journey. Not a journey from Babylon to Zion, but a journey... Uh, of, of spiritual renewal, right? And he says, there's someone coming after me. So this ambiguity of who is the messenger anticipating is already answered now by John. Someone's coming after me who's stronger than me. He's probably not referring to God because God probably doesn't wear sandals. So he's probably referring to someone else. And the someone else turns out to be Jesus, Jesus in, the, in this story is sort of like, because remember in Mark, there's no, there's, no, uh, there's no backstory. There's no birth or nativity. So Jesus is sort of like the lone gunslinger who is walking across the plains into town. No one knows who he is. But we are told Jesus comes from Nazareth in, in, Nazareth in Galilee. It's like he's the only Galilean who responds to John. Everyone else is from Judea, according to the author. So he's the lone, the lone person who no one knows. He comes there. Uh, he goes through the baptism just like everyone else. And uh, we're not told that John has any particular thing to say about Jesus or that he didn't notice anything about Jesus. You know, next, dunk, next, you know, Jesus passes by without John noticing. Um, and then when there's something that different that happens. When Jesus arises out of the water, we're told that the heavens were torn apart. They were torn apart violently. And descending out of the heavens was a spirit which descends upon Jesus and a voice. Uh, the rabbis, the later rabbis of Judaism would probably call this the bat kol. It's a voice, uh, a voice that, uh, that speaks from the heavens. Um, Jesus then is told by the voice, you are my son, the beloved, in you I am well pleased. Remember that there's no indication that Jesus knows who he is before this moment. 
And why would God need to inform him privately of who he was if Jesus already knew? Jesus uh, has his identity and his mission revealed to him at this moment. Obviously, he was sympathetic to John, otherwise he wouldn't have walked all the way from Galilee to the, the River Jordan down here to be baptized. But now he has a different destiny from everyone else, a different role to play. Now, what, what would this role seem like if, if you heard this voice talking like this to you as a first century Jew? What, you, what would you have heard in this, these words? Well, if you knew your scriptures, you would have heard at least three things. You are my son. You would have heard Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a hymn celebrating the coronation of the Davidic monarch. God said to David, when your son comes to the throne, he will be like a son to me and I will be like a father to him. And in Psalm 2, uh, the, the newly uh, anointed Davidic monarch says, uh, this is what God said about me. You are my son today, I have begotten you. That's what Jesus probably would have heard from that part of the saying. But then you're also the beloved. Well, where do we hear about beloved sons? The most important beloved son is Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, whom God commands Abraham to offer as a sacrifice to him. Yikes. The job description has just changed from powerful conquering king to willing sacrifice. Mysterious, isn't it? And then finally, in you I am well pleased. Uh, any Jew, especially if we think in Mark saying that you should be thinking Isaiah everywhere. The one in whom I am well pleased, that is a description of Israel. In Second Isaiah, Isaiah says, you Israel, or, or God says, you Israel are my servant, and you I am well pleased. The servant of God is the people of Israel. Their vocation is to serve God. So Jesus has been identified as a royal figure, a sacrificial figure, and a representative figure, representing, embodying Israel's vocation in the world. All three of those things at once. Then we're told by the narrator that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out, booted him straight through the Jordan, perhaps, to the west side, and threw him out into the wilderness to be tested. Okay, so that's all in very short order. Immediately this happened. So you can imagine Jesus might have been a bit disoriented here. Okay, well, I've just been told that I am uh, the Davidic king who's going to die and I'm God's servant. I'm out in the wilderness. I'm being tested to see whether I can even stand up to this task. Well, he's tested by the devil, which makes sense because the devil is the the, the person that God sends to test people to see whether they really are up to stuff. So Jesus is tested by the devil, by Satan, in the wilderness for 40 days, just as Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, the third part of his mission is to be Israel. He's reenacting the story of Israel. We're not told what Satan tempted him with. Matthew and Luke answer that question. But we're told that he was among the wild beasts, which you might imagine to be the case in the wilderness, and also that angels were there serving him. How exactly they were serving him, we're not sure. Angels are generally um, military types in the Old Testament, especially when they appear as a group. Uh, remember in Luke's Gospel, it's an army of angels uh, that, that, that sings peace on earth unto to people, you know, that song. Um, so how were the angels serving him? Were they kneeling to him saying, we're ready to do your bidding, Lord? You know, what were they saying? We don't know. 
There's a lot of questions that, are, that, are, that emerge, but even the geography sort of maybe supplies a hint. Now, if Jesus was baptized on the east side of the Jordan and is now in the wilderness, unless he was going backwards, let's assume he's in the Judean wilderness between Jericho and Jerusalem. He's within a stone's throw of Jerusalem. Now, if the role of the Davidic ruler is to rule from Jerusalem, and if this, um, this messenger figure in, a, in, in the book of Malachi is to go to the temple and cleanse it, uh, well, Jesus is very well positioned to do that. And we have a whole army of angels behind me ready to serve me to do this. What does he do instead after he resists whatever this test is? He turns around. He turns around and hightails it back to Galilee. But only when a certain thing happens, when John the Baptist is arrested. Mark is ominous. He doesn't tell us who arrested John the Baptist. He just says John was arrested, which is ominous because everything up to here has been sweetness and light. Everyone has been responding positively. Suddenly he's arrested. We don't know by whom. Now, if John was the messenger, the messenger has just been silenced. It's at this very moment in the story that Jesus springs into action and becomes, guess what? What does he do when he goes to Galilee? He starts proclaiming a message. So the messenger is John the Baptist, but it's not only John the Baptist. It's also Jesus. One messenger is silenced, another emerges to expand the message, which is that the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent, just like John said repent, and believe in the good news of God, the, the news that the kingdom of God has drawn near. We'll talk about that another time. But that is Mark's baptism story. We have the plot description. We have the description of John the Baptist and his activity. Then we have Jesus' baptism and then his testing and then his launching into action, commissioned to do what he's about to do. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.